welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I'm the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the April 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm happy to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month's episode will provide a number of updates on nationwide issues impacting the LGBTQ plus community, including so-called conversion therapy, sports bans, and drag bans. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us. It is, as always, a pleasure to be here. We've had a lot going on this past month, and I think we're going to be kind of circling back to a number of prior conversations that we've had over the past year in today's episode. Can we start off at the Supreme Court level? Yes, and uh, the Supreme Court has been asked by Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents a, a licensed family counselor in the state of Washington, who's challenging that state's ban on the performance of conversion therapy on minors. The Ninth Circuit panel had upheld the ban, uh, saying that its prior prior uh, precedent, the pickup case from long ago, actually, it's one, one of the first cases that was challenging a ban on conversion therapy, that that is a binding circuit precedent. So the panel voted two to one to affirm the district court's decision that there was no First Amendment violation by the state of Washington prohibiting counselors from uh, performing conversion therapy on minors. Uh, there was a petition for on-bank review in that case. It, was, it failed, didn't get a majority vote of all the active Ninth Circuit judges, uh, but that resulted in a dissenting opinion, which claimed that a Supreme Court decision in a case called National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra had uh, cast doubt on the continuing viability of the pickup uh, versus Brown decision, which what is the circuit precedent. So a uh, cert petition has been filed by Alliance Defending Freedom, and they have raised two questions to the court. Uh, one question is whether it's a violation of the First Amendment protection for freedom of speech for the state to say that a counselor may not provide a form of therapy that takes the form they claim solely of speech without having passing a strict scrutiny test, which it might fail. The second question, they said, because Mr. Tingley is motivated by his religious beliefs to perform conversion therapy because of his religious beliefs about sexual orientation and gender identity, that the law burdens religious speech. And the question is whether that would be a basis for striking down the law. And uh, the lower court said no because of the Supreme Court's precedent from 30 years ago of Employment Division versus Smith, which held the generally applicable laws that do not target religious practice or belief are uh, generally subject only to rational basis review, not to strict scrutiny under the uh, freedom of religion, free exercise of religion provision in the First Amendment. It has been a goal 
high on the agenda of the right-wing religious litigation movement to get Employment Division versus Smith overruled. That case was very controversial when it was decided. Its issuance prompted Congress to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which purported to restore the pre-Employment Division versus Smith strict scrutiny regime. But ultimately, because the Supreme Court rejected Congress's first attempt to do this, ultimately only for cases involving the application of federal law, and arguably only for cases in which the federal government is enforcing a federal law against somebody who wants to raise a free exercise of religion defense. Although that hasn't been settled by the Supreme Court, that particular limitation on it, although it seems consistent with the language of the statute. Many states followed the example of Congress and passed their own Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. And so uh, the question of whether Employment Division versus Smith is still a viable precedent is a pressing issue. And the uh, Supreme Court itself, uh, several of the justices have signaled their eagerness to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith, most expressly in concurring opinions in the uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case decided a few terms ago by the Supreme Court in which Chief Justice Roberts managed to engineer a way to decide in favor of Catholic Social Services, which didn't want to provide foster care or vetting and certification to same-sex couples. He found a way to decide that without bothering with the constitutional issue. And uh, so the uh, majority opinion for the court did not take on the issue of Employment Division versus Smith, that resulted in a rather anguished concurring opinion by Justice Gorsuch, who agreed with the court that Catholic Social Services could refuse to, uh, to vet same-sex couples. But uh, he said, we granted cert in this case for the purpose of reconsidering Employment Division versus Smith, and now the court won't do it. So he was frustrated. He was joined by Alito and Thomas in his frustration. Justice Barrett signaled her view that Employment Division versus Smith might be wrongly decided, but stated reservations about overruling it without it being much more directly implicated in a particular case that is necessary in order to decide the case, uh, because she saw all kinds of complications that would ensue if all of a sudden any law, state, local, or federal, that incidentally burdened free exercise of religion would suddenly be subjected to strict scrutiny. Uh, you can bet that there would be a festival of litigation that would burst out if Employment Division versus Smith is overruled because ADF and similar organizations that uh, specialize in litigating for uh, free exercise rights, such as Liberty Council, for example, and uh, there are others as well, various conservative public interest law firms that would be piling on. They would be all over the country. We would have litigation. And I think that that gave Justice Barrett pause. And I think it would certainly give the Chief Justice pause. So we'll see what happens on that. But this cert petition was filed on March 27th. And so far, though I checked before we recorded this podcast, it had not been circulated to the court for consideration at its conference on uh, Friday the 28th. And there's no big rush because uh, the uh, court is only now dealing with cert petitions for cases to be argued next term. 
And a quick check on the Supreme Court website showed that so far they have only granted cert for seven cases to be argued next term. Uh, two of them that I'll be mentioning later in this podcast. So uh, sort of interesting that this case is all lined up. The respondents are not formally opposing a grant to cert here. Uh, maybe some of the amicus briefs are opposing are proposing uh, that it is not appropriate case for cert, but it's hard to believe that the court wouldn't grant cert because there is a very clear and stark circuit split on the question whether First Amendment freedom of speech would uh, bar the states and localities from banning conversion therapy, which is represented in the litigation, both the 11th Circuit case, the Otto case uh, involving local laws in Florida, and this uh, state of Washington case, the representation is made that the counselor would be providing conversion therapy only through talk, nothing else. And as we know from some litigation around the country involving conversion therapy, more than talk is involved. And talk is incidental to the fact, uh, and this is the, the logic of pickup versus Brown, talk is incidental to the fact that one is performing a form of therapy or alleged therapy. I would put therapy in, in scare quotes because therapy is something to cure a problem. And this isn't curing a problem. This is taking a perfectly normal phenomenon of sexual orientation or gender identity, treating it as if it is a medical problem and purporting to uh, cure it. And Many of the proponents of conversion therapy say they admit that they can't really change someone's sexual orientation. What they can do is to condition the person psychologically to resist from engaging in gay sex or from transitioning uh, from their gender identified as birth to the gender uh, preference that they have. So, uh, you know, there, there's so much floating around in these cases. Interesting cases, both from the, from the point of view of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, since many conversion therapy practitioners claim to be religiously motivated. So it could go anywhere, but it could be. And I think there's a high likelihood, especially since uh, the petition hasn't been opposed by the respondents and because of the stark split between the Ninth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, that the Supreme Court will likely grant. And this may be one of our big LGBT rights cases of the October 2023 term of the Supreme Court. We truly an issue that's been years in the making in terms of litigation. Thank you for bringing us the latest updates and we'll be watching this one rather closely. And interestingly enough, states continue to litigate, uh, to legislate against it. I think there, there's a new law adopted in the middle of this month. So. Absolutely. It's far from over. Far from over changing gears. Last month, we spoke about an important track and field case in the Fourth Circuit. Can you talk us through the updates since we last spoke? Yeah, this is uh, the case of Becky Pepper Jackson. And when we discussed the case previously, I think we just used her initials because that's what the court used. But counsel for, uh, for Becky has been using her name in their press releases, and uh, she's been interviewed and things like that. So we're, we're free to use her name, I think. She sued the West Virginia State Board of Education. She is a middle school student in West Virginia. She's a transgender girl. She wanted to compete in the track and field area, which is non-contact sports. She's on puberty blockers. 
middle school. She's probably not old enough yet. She's unlikely to get hormones for a while, but she's on puberty blockers. She uh, was told that because of a new West Virginia law that had been adopted just before she was going to start middle school, she could not try out for the, for the girls team. The uh, West Virginia law says that uh, biological sex is the determination of whether you can compete on a men's team or a women's team. And she was identified as male at birth. But from a very early age, she identified herself as female. She's lived as a girl, dressed as a girl, groomed as a girl, taking puberty blockers so that she won't go through male puberty. And the uh, federal district judge, uh, Joseph Goodwin, granted a preliminary injunction in the summer of 2021, just before Becky was to start middle school. The preliminary injunction was narrowly focused on her. Said the only evidence I've received so far is about this particular transgender girl. And so he said they cannot bar her from trying out for the girls' team. She made the girls' team. But it turned out that she is not a spectacular track and field athlete. Uh, she, she hasn't won anything. Uh, she tends to run in the back of the pack on, on the cross country running, which is one of her favorite activities. And uh, she has continued throughout this litigation to participate. Now is now completing uh, her second year, two semesters, second year, so it's four semesters altogether, two semesters in a year, academic year, without any problems, uh, without any protests by other teams. But the state thinks this is an emergency. Uh, so that's sort of the latest that we have to report about. Judge Goodwin gave a preliminary injunction, but then turned around a year and a half later and granted summary judgment to the state. Uh, he said, now that I have a full record, we've had discovery, I've had expert witnesses, et cetera. I think that the state has a rational basis to distinguish between transgender girls and cisgender girls in deciding who compete in girls athletics. I think just the differences between men and women just strike me as significant enough to justify uh, this approach. And so he issued a decision in January of this year, 2023, in which he granted summary judgment to the state and he ordered that the preliminary injunction be lifted. There was a request on behalf of Becky to uh, stay the lifting of the preliminary injunction while she appeals to the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit's an important circuit to go to because that's the circuit that decided the Gavin Grimm case, a pioneering case and recognizing transgender rights under Title IX of the Education Amendments Act, which is the relevant statute here. I mean, we also have constitutional equal protection arguments, but Title IX is really the focus of attention here. Uh, so uh, Judge Goodwin refused to stay. Uh, there was a renewed motion to stay with the spring track and field uh, season looming late in February. So uh, plaintiffs urged Judge Goodwin, just, he said, just until the Fourth Circuit decides, and let, then let the Fourth Circuit uh, carry the ball. But he refused this time, instead of just refusing, he issued an opinion early in February explaining his rationale. So they ran off to the Fourth Circuit and, and asked the Fourth Circuit, it was assigned to a three-judge panel, asked the Fourth Circuit to uh, extend that preliminary injunction. And the Fourth Circuit voted two to one panel voted two to one to do so without issuing any real explanation. 
without going through, I mean, presumably they did go through, but they didn't do it in writing, the criteria for issuing a plenary injunction. And the few sentences that they issued are a bit confusing as to whether what they were doing was staying Judge Goodwin's order to lift the preliminary injunction or whether they were themselves issuing a new preliminary injunction uh, pending decision of the appeal on the merits. However you interpret it though, the state saw this as an emergency. We've got to stop uh, Becky from competing this spring. It's an emergency. And they filed an emergency application to the US Supreme Court asking it to intervene. They, uh, they filed it with Chief Justice Roberts because he is the justice who hears uh, petitions of these sorts from the Fourth Circuit. And rather than just rejecting it out of hand, they're just directly referring it to the rest of the court. He asked for a response from the state, which suggested there was some interest on the court in this case. Else, why would they ask for a response? The state responded, or rather the, uh, the uh, plaintiffs responded, the respondents responded. It was the state's petition. So he asked for uh, the respondents to uh, take a position here. And what they filed was, it seemed to me, very persuasive. They said, there's no emergency. She's been competing for, more, for three semesters now. No one has complained. She's bonded with her teammates. Stopping her from continuing to play right now would not accomplish any uh, important state interest at all. Let the case go to the Fourth Circuit. They've already agreed to expedite a hearing on this. Uh, so uh, the Supreme Court denied the emergency application with two explicit dissents. We, we're not really told how they voted. All we know is that there were not at least five justices who wanted to issue a, an emergency stay, the kind that was asked for by, uh, the, Supreme, by the, uh, the state of West Virginia. But we got two dissenting, we got a dissenting opinion from Justice Alito and, and Justice Thomas. And Justice Alito was very critical of the court upholding, in, in essence, a Fourth Circuit decision that did not explain itself, that did not explain why it was basically rejecting what the district court had done and not explained why it was rejecting what the district court had done, just voting to do it. It was like a, a raw display of judicial power without explanation. Uh, and so Alito uh, was very upset. And I, I don't think he was, he was uh, stating an issue, a position on the merits at all. He was, he was focusing his ire on uh, the panel on the Fourth Circuit that didn't explain why they were in essence issuing a new preliminary injunction since Judge Goodwin had ordered to vacate the preliminary injunction he had issued. Uh, so this is this remains a very, very controversial issue and uh, sort of a second part of this segment of the podcast. I wanted to talk briefly about the Biden administration's proposed regulation on transgender sports participation by transgender girls under Title IX because this was an issue on which the administration punted in the early days. People may remember that on his first day in office, uh, President Biden issued executive orders, basically adopting the Bostock decision, 
issue been decided the year before and saying that all federal agencies that enforce sex discrimination rules of any sort should consider applying the reasoning of the Bostock case. You know, look at your statute, determine whether it's appropriate under your statute to say that the ban on sex discrimination that you are supposed to be enforcing covers sexual orientation and gender identity claims. And the education department was one of the early ones to take a, a stand. The education department, of course, being the enforcement agency for Title IX, the Office of Civil Rights in that, in that agency, they issued guidance right away within, within a few months of the president's order, taking the position that the Bostock rationale for covering sexual orientation and gender identity applied to Title IX. However, however, they said, we're not taking a position yet on athletic competition because we think that needs more study. And they finally finished their study and uh, they have issued on the last day of March, they issued a proposed amendment to the existing regulation to deal with this issue. And the amendment is so short that I can read it in full here. It doesn't take that long. The uh, provision in the uh, Code of Federal Regulations says, the existing uh, provision says that recipients, and Title IX applies only to recipients of federal funding, educational institutions, and virtually all public schools and all higher education institutions that are not religiously affiliated get federal money. Uh, some that are, are religiously affiliated even get federal money, or at least that identify themselves as religious. And that itself is controversial and has been the subject of, uh, of litigation that has not yet concluded. But they propose inserting an additional paragraph after the paragraph that says that recipients may have separate teams for males and females. And the emphasis is on contact sports, but you know, it's, it's, it's up to uh, the recipient to decide whether to do this. But they're, they're saying basically it doesn't violate Title IX's ban on discrimination because of sex to do this. Now they propose to add, if a recipient adopts or applies sex-related criteria that would limit or deny a student's eligibility to participate on a male or female team consistent with their gender identity, such criteria must, for each sport, level of competition, and grade or education level, be substantially related to the achievement of an important educational objective and minimize harms to students whose opportunity to participate on a male or female team consistent with their gender identity would be limited or denied. Now, this is the entire proposed rule. It was preceded in the first version of the memorandum issued by the education department. It was like 100 pages, although in the Federal Register it runs about 30 pages because there's small print, three columns, you know. But still, they say that how this should be interpreted is no categorical ban. That is, you can't automatically exclude all transgender girls or women from competing on girls or women's teams. If you want to exclude them, you have to meet several tests. You have to show for each sport for each level of competition, for each greater educational level, that there is an important educational objective to be achieved and that you have done 
what you could to minimize harms to students whose opportunity to participate on a male or a female team consistent with their gender identity would be limited or denied. The explanatory material basically says, we would expect that at the elementary school level, transgender girls could compete on girls' teams because they haven't been through puberty and the differentiation between the physical abilities of boys and girls is not all that sharp. That is until uh, the men start going through puberty and growing those testosterone-fueled muscles, et cetera, there isn't all that much of a distinction. So they would think that uh, certainly for non-contact sports, transgender girls should be able to participate. After that point, they say, it should be decided not on a categorical, but on an individual basis. And they emphasize that the number of transgender girls who want to do competitive sports is relatively small. That it would mean that in any particular school district or educational institution, there might be one or two maybe a handful of transgender girls who have to be evaluated. And then you would evaluate to see, have they been taking puberty blockers? Have, have they essentially not gone through male puberty? Have they been taking, when you're getting into the upper level into high school and college, have they been taking hormones? Is the level of testosterone in their body significantly uh, repressed or suppressed? And is the level of estrogen that they're taking or whatever uh, hormone they're taking to feminize their body, has it resulted in a more feminine body? In other words, we're going to, at some point, get into the issue of fairness and safety issues and things of that sort, and ask, is this, in fact, someone who is still really physically male in the sense of relevance to sports competition at the level of competition and the sport involved? So what they're saying is it's got to be a case-by-case -case thing. And this really echoes what the National Collegiate Athletic Association has said and what the world's sports federations have said, the Olympic Committee has said that, uh, and those of course are dealing with college and uh, with even post-college with Olympic competition and things of that sort. They're saying it's got to be an individual thing. It shouldn't be a categorical thing. We shouldn't be categorically excluding people. And in fact, the, uh, the rules on, on testosterone level, and that's really the physical exam that's considered most significant, the rules on testosterone level would also disqualify some cisgender women who have abnormally high levels of testosterone if they're not suppressing it and uh, suppressing it early enough to prevent them from developing uh, male physique. So... Uh, you know, this, this, this has been published in the Federal Register. I've, I've been checking on a regular basis, and it has been published in the Federal Register, which means it's open to notice to comment. The notice has been given. Comment period runs through May 15th. If you want to submit a comment, go to federalregister.gov and get yourself a copy. Uh, so you see all the arguments there that you might want to respond to, and there is a way to uh, write your thing, put it in a PDF file, and upload it on the uh, Education Department's website. Uh, all the directions are given right there 
in the Federal Register publication if you have a strong interest in weighing in on this issue. They are undoubtedly going to be flooded with comments. After they get the comments, they have to go through them and they have to respond, not necessarily to respond to the commenters individually, but to respond when they publish, if they publish a final regulation. And it doesn't become a legally binding thing that's enforceable as a matter of law until it is published in its final form with an explanation of uh, how they've considered the comments and uh, how they have adjusted their proposed wording to respond to them in any way. So this issue is being considered at a high level. This is uh, the, under the Administrative Procedure Act, Congress in Title IX has basically delegated to the agency some rulemaking authority. And the rule would have the force of law, although, of course, once it's published, it can be challenged in the federal courts of appeals. And I would bet you that there will be challenges filed, no matter what the rule is, there will be challenges filed. We have, what, around 20 states now that have passed statutes that ban uh, transgender girls from competing in K through 12 level, and some of them also in college level. And I would imagine that uh, a group of those states would probably be unhappy with this because this says no categorical ban. Or at least it, by implication, it says no categorical ban. It says you have to do an individual uh, consideration. So if it gets into the courts of appeals, it could end up in the Supreme Court. We're talking about the Supreme Court a lot today. We sure are. And Becky, if you're out there and listening, I hope you keep running. It's such a fantastic hobby, not to disparage her athletic abilities, but once again, we see the falsehood in this oft-repeated trope that all trans femme athletes are somehow unfairly sweeping victories across the state. The other wrinkle in this conversation that could impact things going forward with the proposed regulation was on April 20th, 2023, the U.S. House of Representatives passed H.R. 734, the so-called Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act. Now, I don't think we expect this to pass the Senate, and I believe Biden has already signaled he would veto such legislation, but another consideration for the ongoing national conversation. So we're going to move from sports to the arts, so to speak. And today we'll be focusing next in the conversation about what's going on with drag. Can you take us to Tennessee? Well, I wouldn't say so to speak when referring to drag. Drag is an art, it's an art form. And it's a form of expression and communication. And therefore, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, is relevant to attempts by state and local governments to stamp out drag, which we see going on around the country now. And uh, in particular, we're focused on an opinion issued on the very last day of March, 2023, by U.S. District Judge Thomas L. Parker, I believe a Trump appointee. Very interesting. A temporary restraining order in the case of Friends of Georgia's Incorporated versus State of Tennessee. The State of Tennessee passed a law making it a crime to perform adult cabaret entertainment in, quote, any location where the adult cabaret entertainment could be viewed by a person who is not an adult. And the law defines adult cabaret entertainment to include, among other things, single or multiple performances by an entertainer that are, quote, harmful to minors 
and that feature topless dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, male or female impersonators, or similar entertainers. Sounds, well, that list sounds very specific, but then they add, or similar entertainers, and so it becomes vague. Who is, a, is, is someone who is performing in drag a similar entertainer? Now, uh, recently I went to a performance at the Metropolitan Opera House here in New York of Der Rosenkavalier by Richard Strauss, a core repertory item written more than a century ago in which a male role is customarily played by a female singer. The role of Octavian, who is supposed to be a teenage boy who's having an affair with a middle-aged woman. I mean, that's at the center of the Rosenkavalier. And uh, at the time that Strauss wrote this, he wanted that role to be someone in the soprano vocal range I think it may even be mezzo-soprano, even a bit lower. And we didn't have countertenors running around back then. We didn't have men singing in that range. And he fully expected that a woman would play the role. And it's even specified the uh, first cast of the uh, opera when it was first performed, it was a woman. When I saw it at the Metropolitan Opera, it was also a woman. Occasionally, they put it on with a male countertenor playing that role if they find someone who could pass as an 18-year-old. <laughs> But would that be covered by the statute? Can De Rosen Cavalier not be presented to minors in the state of Tennessee? Well, they, they call it adult cabaret entertainment, but they say similar entertainers. I mean, the idea of, if you look at, at in history, uh, when Romeo and Juliet was first performed at the Globe Theater by Shakespeare, during the Elizabethan period, they had men dressed as girls playing some of these roles because they weren't singing, you know, you could carry it off if you have a, a young man with a high-pitched voice playing the part of Juliet. So, and we've also had performances where women have played the part of Romeo. It's, but at any rate, this is really talking about drag shows and Friends of George is a nonprofit organization that stages drag photos, drag shows to raise money for charity. And they put on drag and, you know, the essence of drag is that the performers are clothed. This isn't strippers. <laughs> and uh, drag is usually presented as humorous, not necessarily sexual. But in the eyes of the Tennessee legislature, any drag has sexual overtones and is harmful to children to be exposed to that. They provide no evidence that it's harmful. They just assert it. And uh, so the Friends of George's had a show scheduled to take place on April 15th. The statute was supposed to go into effect on April 1st. They're faced with a dilemma. In the state of Tennessee, they can be prosecuted. They can be subjected to fines, imprisonment. I mean, this is serious stuff. It's a criminal statute. The first offense is, is just a, a misdemeanor, but the second offense is a felony. Do they be sure to hold that show in a, in a locale where they can exclude all minors? Do they have to require people to show proof of age at the door in order to get in? Uh, or do they have to cancel? 
they're not even sure whether their particular drag show would meet the specifications of the statute because the statute is vague. I mean, it says harmful to minors, but there's no definition of harmful to minors. And as we see by, by saying male or female impersonators or similar entertainers, we're not sure whether their drag show would be covered or not. So at any rate, they went to court challenging it. They said that this violates their First Amendment rights. And Judge Parker issued a temporary restraining order, at first a relatively short one, until they could schedule uh, a, uh, a hearing where, where he could hear arguments. But he subsequently extended it and uh, has scheduled a hearing on a motion for preliminary injunction to take place. Uh, so we may even have a decision on a preliminary injunction pretty soon, sometime in April. But at any rate, he said there were three different theories that he could see under which this would raise serious First Amendment issues. First of all, he said it's a contest-based regulation of speech. They said, oh, no, it's not. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a regulation on time, place, and manner because we're not prohibiting drag shows. We're just saying you can't present them anywhere where a minor can see them. So they can't be out of doors because a minor could wander in. It's gotta be in an enclosed space. It's gotta be in an enclosed space where minors are not present. You can see where they're heading with this. They don't want drag shows in public libraries. They don't want drag shows in schools. They don't want drag shows being staged in retail establishments. They're saying you wanna do a drag show which should be in an adult venue like a nightclub or something like that, and where you don't admit uh, minors. But he said, the judge said, this is not time, place, and manner, because by the way, the place could be anywhere. They don't put a restriction on the place. The existing statute, there is an existing statute that this amends, only applies to adult establishments, which are defined and which have a, a definition under the law. But this one could apply anywhere. So he said, and because it singles them out, it singles out uh, male and female impersonators, he finds it to be a content-based regulation of speech. Secondly, he said, the law, to the extent that you're concerned about obscenity and harm to minors, is a bit redundant because Tennessee already has an obscenity law that would apply to at least some of what you are claiming that you're addressing in this statute. And third, the vagueness problem. Vague, overly broad. So the judge says there are three different theories under which this law is subject to strict scrutiny. And strict, under strict scrutiny, it is presumptively unconstitutional unless the state comes in with a compelling justification and shows that it's narrowly tailored uh, to achieve the particular purpose uh, without unduly interfering with First Amendment free speech rights. And he said the state so far hasn't presented any evidence on that. So he issued the TRO, he subsequently extended it. There should be a preliminary injunction in place at some point soon. But these uh, proposals, legislative proposals to regulate or ban drag are popping up around the country and it's important that the point be made and it be made early and that it be made even by judges appointed by President Trump, who are presumably quite conservative, that the freedom of speech under the First Amendment applies to any kind of theatrical performance, basically. I mean, the state may have a compelling reason aimed at certain kinds of performances, but just 
broadly speaking, drag doesn't do it. It's, it's a categorical uh, rule that is really, uh, depending how you interpret the phrase harmful, harmful to minors, it could apply or not apply to any particular drag performance. We don't know. And that's where the vagueness and the overbreath come in. So I think a very useful opinion to have on the books at first, when we were writing about it for this issue of law notes, all we had was a slip opinion from the court, but it has since been published on Westlaw and Lexis. And there's an indication that it's going to be published in FedSup as well. So we will have a very useful opinion analyzing the First Amendment issues regarding drag shows uh, that will be there to be, uh, to be cited. So once again, we're really just kind of viewing the same problem through different lenses, right? We're seeing these attacks on LGBTQ plus people participating in public life, whether that's through the arts or through sports, or trying to restore the longtime discredited practice of so-called conversion therapy. Um, so I guess that's kind of the theme for this month's conversation, and we'll continue to reflect back on a number of these cases. Before we close this month's episode out, do you have any final decisions or cases of note that we could discuss? Yes. I always try to come up with something as a closer. And here we're back to the Supreme Court again. The Supreme Court in April, uh, so really this will be reported in the May issue of Law Notes, but the Supreme Court on April 24th granted cert in two cases that are relevant for us to discuss because we have an article in this issue about another case that presents the exact same issue. And the issue is when a public official establishes a social media platform of some sort, which is interactive, that is, which is open to taking comments from members of the public, does the First Amendment apply? That's the issue. We have an article about a case called Biederman versus Earhart from the US District Court in the Northern District of Georgia. On March 7th, US District Judge J.P. Booley of the Northern District of Georgia granted a preliminary injunction in a First Amendment case concerning a Republican state representative's Facebook page and a man who commented in opposition to the legislator's anti-trans bill. The legislature was sponsoring a bill in the Georgia legislature on one of these various anti-trans issues that we see popping up. And this man posted several times, posted uh, very, very harshly critical comments uh, about the legislator and, and his proposal. And so the legislator blocked him from being able to post on the Facebook page. And he sued claiming he had a first amendment right to post because this was a state legislator. His page was being used for the discussion of issues of public interest that are pending in the legislature. He should have a first amendment right to comment. And the district judge said, well, you've made a pretty good case. I'm gonna give a preliminary injunction and we'll see where this goes. Well, there were cases like this all over the country many legislators establish uh, their own particular page on Facebook or on TikTok or on Instagram or wherever and uh, are accepting comments and then blocking people when they don't like the comments. And so the Supreme Court has taken two of those cases where cert petitions were on file and has agreed to hear them next, next uh, term. Uh, one of them is called O'Connor Ratliff versus Garnier and the other is Linke versus Freed. Both cert petitions granted on April 24th. You can take a look at the uh, petitions on the Supreme Court's website. And I do recommend the Supreme Court's website. It's a fascinating place to go. 
you can see the docket for any case that's been filed. So you can see who's been filing the amicus briefs. And the amicus briefs are there in PDF files that are linked. So you can open and read them. You can look at the shadow docket, the uh, opinions the court releases on motions uh, for stays and for preliminary injunctions pending uh, argument and things of that sort. And there's even, very interesting to look at, a list of cert petitions that have been granted for the next term. And they've only granted petitions in seven cases so far. So uh, they've got a lot of catching up to do. They will be continuing to hold conferences for the remainder of this term, but they heard their last oral argument in the last week of April. So there will be no more oral arguments until next fall in the first week of October. But uh, we will be getting lots of opinions because I'm told by one source that there are more, more than 40 argued cases in which they have not issued opinions yet, including the one that we are all watching closely, 303 Creator versus Elenis, the case of the website designer in, in uh, Colorado who doesn't want to do wedding websites for same-sex couples. So there should be an opinion in that coming through sometime between now and the end of June. And we will, of course, keep you informed. Well, I look forward to our conversations ahead in May and June. Thank you for the plug about the Supreme Court website. It is such a, a rich resource for our non-lawyer listeners that might be a little bit intimidated about that resource. The OIA project is another good place to kind of go to if you need that need that extra support in terms of breaking down what the cases are really about and how do I find each individual piece and, and what does this mean? So that's that's another great resource, the cry of the court, oya.org. So I just wanted to give a plug for that. Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs. <laughs>